Hello, Mage fans. This is Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm Adam Simpson. I'm joined tonight by Terry Robinson. And Terry, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I have a two-point flaw, I guess you could say, obsessive, that whenever I find something that was published by White Wolf, and it's like a nice lot of things, like all the books by clan or all the werewolf tribe books and if they're like less than five dollars a pop i will get the whole set if i don't have it already and that led me to buy almost all of first and second edition exalted this week and all of werewolf the apocalypse because there was a bookseller who was just selling their collection they had no idea what it was worth i threw in a low ball bid i offered them three dollars a book and they're like ah this sounds reasonable so um i think i may kill my mailman when he tries to deliver everything sometime next week <laughs> and i'm literally taking like a day off from work so i can be there to receive it that way the person doesn't like halump it out of the truck knock on my door be like damn it jackass isn't home and have to pull it back like i don't want to kill my mailman and that's that that is the most difficult thing going on in my life except for the fact that i have an actuarial exam coming up in two weeks and i'm going out of my gourd but for a brief moment we get to talk about mage and that is that is what is taking me out of math quiet this week well good luck with that upcoming exam yeah i remember uh running a game for three friends for uh first edition exalted uh that that was pretty fun it was a fun system even though the number of dice used got a little wild sometimes. Back to Mage. Uh, here in uh, this week's episode, we're going to give one announcement. Terry and I were talking about our Discord server, where we have uh, a lot of good conversations and uh, meet a lot of Mage fans. And we were noticing that we weren't seeing a lot of gaming. And it occurred to me, hey, uh, do we have any dice scripts here? Turns out we didn't. So I hooked up a bot called uh, Dice Parser and uh, wrote out uh, some dice scripts for that. Those are now in place on our uh, Discord server. Uh, also, uh, we've got some documentation on on what commands to type out to make the dice roll for you. Uh, so those are in place now. So we encourage people, uh, if you would like to run a game, a one-shot, uh, start a kickoff, a chronicle, uh, anything like that, uh, that's available now. We can uh, provide the information so you can uh, spin off your own room or, or set of rooms to, to tackle that. Uh, so we encourage you to try some mage gaming. And if you have any questions, you can ask it to all the other channels in real time, which I found terribly useful because I'm trying to get an Invisible Sun game up and running. And while I was walking everyone remotely through character generation, I also had the Monty Cook Games Discord server up. So a character is like, uh, how does this ability interact with this ability? Uh, hold on. I'm going to go get something to drink. Frantically type, get an answer back in like 30 seconds. Oh, this is how it works. And it looked like I knew what I was doing. So you too can can pull off that illusion if you desire. Sounds cool. All right. Well, in today's episode of uh, Tomes of Magic, we are discussing Hidden Lore. This was a rather thin book. It had a 14 on the spine. It came out uh, soon after the second edition core book, and it was uh, shrink-wrapped together with the second edition Mage Storyteller's Screen, which uh, I I have one behind me. I was just uh, looking at it before this episode to jog my memory. It's got uh, images of the Mage Tarot cards on the outside with a lot of that uh, deep purple we all expect. And on the inside, it's got a a lot of reference charts. So it can be handy for those running second edition games. Uh, I don't uh, use it so often myself, which is probably why it's still in decent condition. But for the book Hidden Lore, this clocked in at about, well, not counting, roughly 70 pages. Pages towards the end don't have numbers on them, but about 70. So this came out in early 1996, and uh, it is listed as 
an overflow book. This is what they could not fit into the second edition core book. So as I started reading it a few days ago, I thought to myself, well, those backgrounds that are mentioned but not detailed in the second edition core book, surely they must be here. But no, they are not. Apparently, even in the overflow book, the uh, people putting together Mage Second Edition decided, eh, you know what, those guys, they've got their Book of Shadows uh, player's guide. It's all in there. They can use that. Yeah, in fact, I thought it was the case that the Book of Shadows came out after the Second Edition core rulebook because it made mention to the backgrounds. And I'm like, oh, obviously it's in this player's guide book and it's just overflow from there, not realizing at the time that it had come out like two years earlier or something like that. Yeah, that was one odd thing about the first two editions of Mage when put together. There was only one player's guide, and it was uh, about in the middle of first edition. There was only one uh, storyteller's handbook, and it was in second edition. So first and second edition uh, had some surprising things in common there. (laughs) Yeah, if you wanted to learn about stone lore, you would have to wait until Revised to come out to get more information. Looking through my notes, um, I really enjoyed early on in the book, they had uh, alternative gaming styles, and they mentioned four different uh, alternative gaming styles. The first two uh, they list as one-on-one gaming and uh, troop play, and uh, I I really enjoyed those. The uh, one-on-one gaming is something that I was doing a lot when I was uh, running my own Chronicles back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, and troop play is one of those ideas that I wish I would have thought of, but I didn't. Now that I've been reading about it, I think that would be a great idea. What I mean by troop play is every player has more than one character, say two to four characters per player. At the beginning of each game session, the storyteller can tell them, okay, now you're all going to use your mages, or now you're all going to use your acolytes or your consors or something like that. Uh, Or also the storyteller could say, okay, tonight we're going to be dealing with the city and perhaps the digital web and uh, choose a character that you think is going to work well there. And so players can switch off different characters and so i thought that was just a great idea not only for adding uh, acolytes and and consorts and other backup type characters to the game but also just a a chance to use some of those interesting ideas that uh, that don't come up as often Uh, for example i can imagine someone who has purchased the gods and monsters book and i said hey there's a lot of great material in here but my players are just you know totally into playing their mage characters and i i just don't know if i'm going to use this like well here is a great chance you can put the gods and monsters on the table and say hey look everybody make a make a consort and at the beginning of each session you can choose which uh, character you're going to play and it's not for everyone, I'll admit that, but uh, I think it opens up some great ideas. And and the key here is, as opposed to playing a one-shot, you're going between characters. You go from character A to character B to character C, and then eventually you're going to play A, B, and C again. It's not like you're going A, 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 A. Well, today we're just going to play the Custos. A, 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 A. The real idea behind troop play is that it allows you to enumerate a much larger world. It was very key to the Ars Magica system. I'm a big fan of troop play when there are multiple timelines. I like when you have characters that are earthbound and those that are maybe beyond the deep umbra. I also like when you have characters in a historical setting and characters in a contemporary setting, and you're kind of jumping back and forth between the two, not necessarily in stories that intertwine, but in stories that will inform the other, where what the characters do in the past does in some minor way influence what happens in the future. That's the big way I've used 
troop play. Otherwise, I've more or less used one shots. But if you're interested in troop play, there's a lot more information available about it in the Ars Magica system. And it's also brought up, I think, later in the Storyteller Guides where they give a little bit more. This is a case where they just give a single paragraph just to kind of plant the idea. Yeah, I, I guess they don't uh, flesh it out as fully as some of those other sources. But I, I still just uh, think it could be a really cool idea. I, I could see one player who uh, says, okay, I'm going to have one of these characters that's really good for cities and dealing with sleepers and modern day sorts of things. And now I'm going to have this other character who's uh, really good in mage society and, and Umbra and mystical places. And uh, then I've got this third character who's totally into technomagic or technomagical sorts of things. And then depending, you can ask the storyteller at the beginning of each session, well, where are we mostly going tonight? So I'm going to pick the character that's going to shine there. And uh, I, I think that could be a lot of fun, but uh, you'll, you'll have to experiment with it at your own tables and see how it goes for you. And uh, as for the one-on-one -on -one playing, that was one I was pretty much doing before I, I ever read this uh, passage in, in Hidden Lore. But uh, I, I think that adds a lot of um, possibilities uh, to gaming. Of course, when you sit down for a regular gaming session, you've got all of your players there and, and you go through the session together. But um, especially with how much time we spend online these days, I think it's great to take a like a midweek or, or some evening and uh, when you find one of your players online, it's like, oh, hey, you, you wanted to talk about going to find that one NPC and asking some questions, getting some detailed information. We, we could do a one-on-one -on -one gaming session, just you know, one storyteller, one player. We can chat on uh, Skype or Discord or, or whatever and uh, work through this scene. And then when we start the, uh, the regular gaming session where everybody is there, you know, in character, your your character can, can go around to the others and say, hey, guess what I found out? Uh, now we don't have to do this in-game. We can continue on with some other stuff. Uh, it, it's worked very well for me. I generally don't do large-scale one-on-one or blue booking just because it's kind of, kind of time-consuming. But I have done something where you will take a single draw of a tarot deck or a single other random event generator, and that will be the entirety of whatever that scene or event is going to be. In other systems, it's referred to as development mode, or it could be referred to as side scenes. There's a, there's a bunch of uh, ways, but it's one of those things that has slowly inched its way into gaming as a way of dealing with the fact that, unlike in Dungeons & Dragons, where the group's purpose is to just go around and kill stuff, in Mage, characters have individual arcs and individual goals which are separate from the group. How do you allow them to pursue that without taking away table time? And one-on-one -on -one gaming is one way of doing that, as is blue booking. And I, I would argue that nowadays the two have kind of merged into one another, where it's this continuous spectrum of storyteller involvement and player involvement. You can kind of set the levels on each two to wherever the heck you'd like them to go. Yeah, that may be true. Blue booking is also... Uh mentioned here in the alternative gaming styles in, in hidden lore and uh, that's when I, I have not done so much in the past but yeah i, I can sort of see how one-on-one -on -one and blue booking would would fold together yeah the to me the big difference between the two is one-on-one -on -one is highly interactive where it's like normal role-playing but there's just two people present where blue booking is often a case where a character will write out kind of in long form what is happening to them. The player in my mind when doing blue booking is taking much more narrative control. They may be filling in dialogue that other people have. They may be filling in their own successes and failures and more or less reporting back to the storyteller what happened. And that is the way I run seekings where a player writes up what happens to their during their seeking, they indicate what they learned about their avatar or what their next lesson is or what 
things they have been told by their avatar to do to advance forward. I write that down in my notes and we bake it in going from there. I don't have a strong urge in saying you passed or failed or you need to do this. I give some vague notes ahead of time. They write it up. They give it to me in the form of an email usually and we just roll with it. So that's the closest I've ever gotten to proper blue booking. And the fourth of the alternative uh, gaming styles mentioned is uh, troop storytelling, and that is where one storyteller and a group of players, they, the, the role of storyteller would be transferred around the circle. And uh, I have not tried that myself. Uh, I haven't actually spoken with that many people who have tried that, so I, I don't really have experience there. I'm, I'm wondering what sort of effects that would have on a chronicle. That, that I'm, I'm just not too sure of. I haven't spoken to anyone who really tried that. Yeah, I, I've allowed players to pilot arcs where they were the storyteller and I got to be a character, but that's the closest I've gotten to it. It hasn't been something where it rotated regularly. But if you've done it, tell us about it on our Discord server or email us, magesthepodcast at gmail.com. Certainly, I'd like to hear about it uh, also. This uh, section of uh, Hidden Lore finishes up with alternate combat rules. And that I thought was pretty interesting. It, it basically gives you a way to resolve combat and also other uh, skill checks or, or difficult feats that a character might attempt in a game. It uh, allows you to do it with one roll and much less time. And so they, they say that this is good because it, it, it's a time saver. Um, some combats are more important than others. You know, some are like the, uh, what is it, conclusion of a gaming session and, you know, drama runs high and every every punch and kick and dodge is uh, interesting to everyone at the table. But uh, other times when you're just trying to wade through some uh, uh, foot soldiers to get to the real problem, every uh, round of combat is, is not so interesting to go through. So they say, hey, here is alternate combat rules. Um, they mention that there were four or five articles from uh, White Wolf's Infobia magazine, which was a, a fan magazine for World of Darkness back in the somewhere in the 90s. And um, I went online and tried to find them. One or two issues are available as PDF and more than half of those issues simply aren't available in any form that I could find. I even went uh, hunting around on uh, one or two pirate sites, uh, seeing if there were pirate <laughs> PDF copies. I couldn't even find those. So uh, don't worry, they're not being pirated, uh, as far as I can tell. You got people in the dark web calling out hits on one another and buying drugs and like finding illicit porn. And Adam's like, does anyone have a copy of White Wolf in Phobia 52? <laughs> uh, you make it sound a lot more exciting than it really was, but <laughs> if this is elaborated on better in Infobia magazine, I, I may never know the details. But uh, just reading this short section in Hidden Lore, I think that this could be a helpful tool for uh, quickly taking care of skill checks and, and combat rounds and other things like that. But this is something that would really need some playtesting with, with your group. I, I can't imagine how you could simply use it as is. They give one brief chart, a few paragraphs of text, and then move on. And so I think it's a good idea. Also, uh, Mark Hope mentioned this during his episode on street-level mage. He offered that as a, a, a nice way of, of handling uh, combat for street-level uh, chronicles. And uh, perhaps it is good, but I, I would just give you the warning that you're going to need to playtest it with your group, and it's probably going to take a couple of game sessions to tweak it to the way that you and your group want to use it. So don't expect it to work right out of the tin. Yeah, more or less the problem with traditional combat is every strike requires four rolls. One, I roll to see if I hit them. They roll to see if they dodge. I roll for damage. They roll for soak. This attempts to collapse it to one. And 
There are other game systems that do that. Blades in the Dark is one of which I am fond, where you just kind of make a general combat role and you kind of indicate vaguely what you're doing. And maybe if you fail, you take damage and then you have the ability to resist that damage. But it's part of a movement in some RPGs where the storyteller quite simply never rolls the dice. And I like that. I feel like it prevents players from developing animosity. Like if a player is in combat and I roll as the big bad to hit them and it does like seven dice worth of damage, it's now the storyteller who's inflicting harm, even though it's the storyteller's character. And to just kind of be an umpire that calls balls and strikes and and helps the plot emerge, I think makes it the table a little bit less adversarial. It's just a design philosophy and this is a step in that direction. But if you're curious about combat systems that are much more streamlined, I would look at Blades in the Dark or Powered by the Apocalypse as kind of a a starting point. But this is a good effort, but I agree with Adam. You need to test drive it because it does fundamentally change the way like beating up people works and it doesn't really work super well for like the big bad. Well, uh, let's see. Moving through this book, we get to a chapter about Theater of the Mind, which is the name of a lower-powered tradition chantry in the city of Seattle, Washington. Now, I, I thought this was really interesting because when I bought this book years back, I was um, somewhere in my early 20s. And just after reading Hidden Lore, my family took a road trip to Seattle. And so I thought, hey, hey, let's go to Pike's Peak Market. Maybe I can actually find this uh, magic shop that all of this is based on. And I did find it. I, I found the magic shop exactly where they said it would be. And I was terribly disappointed. I, I was all you know, excited to think that, uh, oh, it's, it's going to be just the way they described it. And it's going to be like a, you know interesting little place. And I, I was sorely disappointed. Although it was in the spot where they described it would be. It was not like they described it. It was a very, very small shop. I mean, tiny. The whole wall of it um, was basically a great big window. So you've got this long indoor hallway that had heavy foot traffic, lots and lots of shoppers, lots and lots of tourists. And there is a great big glass wall looking into this tiny little magic shop where there's one guy behind the desk playing with you know standard playing cards. And anything that happens in that shop is going to be the subject of great scrutiny every moment of the day by a large number of people. So I can't imagine that any faction of mages would want to have a front door to their chantry that is that public, that obvious. I, it just was unbelievable to me. Yeah, no, you just came to the mind and correspondence effects, Adam. Please don't. don't. <laughs> I fully understand aspirationally you wish you were a hermetic and everything. But I mean, at the end of the day, we're both sleepers to the best of my knowledge. So I, I can certainly see that. But yeah, I've had a few cases where like... I, I go to a place that was depicted somewhere and you're like, oh, that's remarkably lame. I should have never come here and it destroyed <laughs> it for me. But at the same time, I do like the idea of uh, a leaning into putting a, a chantry in a place where there shouldn't be one in the same way that there is a massive uh, Garu sept in Central Effing Park. <laughs> there's like 900 vampires within 90 feet of it. And the technocrats like own the place. And they're like, F you, we have a sept here. Eat it. <laughs> so sometimes it's good to have the, it's good to lean into a little bit, but 
Yeah. Did you, <laughs> did you want to skip over the uh, the sections on 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 Rotes making interesting characters and the backstory characters, or do you want to circle back after this? Oh well, I was just going to go on and, and uh, mention that the chantry in Seattle that they have in Hidden Lore uh, gets its own chapter, and it, it's called the Theater of the Mind. It has. Uh, sample NPCs to populate it. It has a description of, of what it's like and uh, a small sort of horizon realm that's attached to it and, and how it's uh, like tunnels underground with uh, mysterious things coming out at, at different times. I actually did not enjoy this uh, uh, Chantry write-up. Uh, it, it didn't appeal to me all that much, so I, it's not like I would really want to put it into any of my chronicles. But I do think that it serves as a good example for newer storytellers who may not have the Book of Chantries, which was uh, published, uh, you know, two years before this. Uh, not everybody has it. So if storyteller wanted some example of a Chantry so that they can say, well, you know, just give me something to start with and, and I'll go from there. Well, this is a, a good example. So you don't need the Book of Chantries to be able to put uh, something into your chronicle. Uh, this, I think this serves well enough for, for someone starting out. I would like to note it, two things. Rudolfo Ospensky, the Chantry leader, the Hermetic. He is one of the few canon characters in Mage who is fat, and I appreciate that. In fact, this year for April Fools, I am working on a secret supplement regarding that, which I'm tentatively calling Taco Bell by Night, explaining why there are no <laughs> fat people in the world of darkness, how they are their own supernatural entity, and at this very moment, they are defending us from forces beyond the gauntlet. Uh, the other thing... I liked about it was it talks about the magical effect, the spirit for correspondence for effect that allowed you to step from there across. And I just like to point out with the rules as presented, there is a roughly 7% chance of you botching that. Like every time you go from the earthly aspect to the umbral aspect, there's just like a 7% chance that Timmy doesn't come back. And this is one of my problems with certain effects. Also, no one at the Chantry has the dots required to cast that effect. Like even Rudolfo, does, he has correspondence for, but he only has spirit too. So I thought that was cute. But so, yeah, I, I agree. I would probably not use it. But I mean, as a storyteller, I'm never going to. I'm never going to be annoyed that someone gave me three or four pre-made characters, even if I completely ignore the magical aspect of it, just to have like a picture and a short write-up on what they're like. And uh, so the next time I need a, uh, a Sons of Ether slash Nefondus in training, who is apparently becoming a Nefondus because they like digging, I thought that was an interesting way. Like most people have to walk through the calls. and Nope, he's just digging straight through it. He's got, <laughs> he's got a different way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That, that was a bit odd. It, it seemed to indicate that if you spend a lot of time underground, well, you yeah. better watch out. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you stare into the void, the void stares back. But if you dig directly into the void, you become a Nefondus. But at the end of the day, like, there's a reason that some of this stuff was cut, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it does give some interesting options. It's short. It's not like it's it's pretty tight writing, so even if you don't like it, eh, you're through it pretty quick. So I'm fine with that. There is a section in Hidden Lore, Mages of Note, and uh, this was rather interesting for me after having recently read a lot of the first edition books uh, to see all of the uh, published characters in, in the mage books sort of rounded up in one place. Uh, this uh, especially features a lot of the characters that are named in short fiction pieces in the second edition core book and the introduction to first edition books and in various other places. So it, it rounds them all up and gives you like a short list of, of 
of all the published NPCs, not not with stats and, and images, but just you know, a name and, and a, a brief description of them to sort of catch you up so that you're ready for uh, seeing them again throughout second edition books. Yeah, and there's part of me that's like they phoned it in. These are literally almost all characters that we have already seen. And, and some of them are intensely tied to an area or a plot, like they bring up Weaver, the semi-mythical entity that dwells in the umbral reflection of San Francisco. And it's like, eh, if you're not using Luma Fate, it's super hard for me to use that. But a bunch of these would actually, I was surprised, get way more information in Revised. So I, I thought that was kind of neat. I think my favorite uh, little drop-in thing that they mentioned was one, when Tsar Vargo took over the world, he was 36. I turned 36 in like four months, and I'm nowhere near having an ethership army to subdue the world. It's just one of those cases where you're like, okay, he was born in this year, he did this in this year. Uh, yeah, I've accomplished nothing with my life. Um, <laughs> and the, the other one is uh, Archmage Mariana of Balador is waging a fight against seventh generation, which is a organization that is introduced in werewolf, the apocalypse that uses, I'm just going to say child abuse to advance the plans of the worm. Like there are cases where the games like subtly recognize corruption, but then there are times when they're like, look at these bad people doing bad things. And you're like, okay, it's good to have some uh, moral inambiguity at some certain points. So I, I can get behind that. We also get like a little bit, on I like how it gave us some information on most of the Primi. Like, <laughs> we get information on Tom Laughing Eagle Smithson, Mariana of Balador, uh, Naja Bantu, and that's it. <laughs> like, like if, you're, if you're in any other tradition, you have to wait until the Euthanatos book to get more detail. But uh, that's just me. Again, there's a reason this material was cut, but if you can find it on eBay for two bucks with a storyteller scream, hop on it. It's pretty fun. Yeah, I, I was pleased to see that uh, Secret Agent John Courage is uh -huh. mentioned here yet again, and he is, still, he is still a thrill-seeking wild card. Just uh, He changes uh, sides at the drop of a hat, and nobody knows what he's up to. He's just dangerous and unstable, and it is later on that we get to uh, see behind that persona. But for now, he is still the wild man, and... Uh, I enjoyed seeing that. Uh, this book has two sections of rotes. It starts off with a section on rotes for tradition mages, and then later on in the book, in what is uh, purportedly material more geared towards a storyteller, we see rotes that you can give to technocrats, uh, marauders, uh, nefandi, etc. And now, while a lot of these rotes were, were quite high-powered, I actually enjoyed them. I, I thought there were a number of rotes in here that were just innovative and, and interesting. I mean, I expect to see some rotes that are for combat, and I expect to see some sort of utility kind of rotes, good for, you know, commonly encountered uh, situations. But um, this had just a lot of um, strange ones that I wouldn't have expected that could, could lead to some fun storytelling. Like, for example, there's a hermetic rote that uses mind and matter at low levels and allows you to simply rub a substance on your fingers or put your hand into something and you can experience that and, and know more about it, but but get a like a, a weaker dose of it. For example, you could have some like real uh, highly potent cocaine, 
and you simply stick your finger into it and you can you get a very very mild effect of that something that you can control and you know what that stuff is it's like white powder what is that oh that's what it is and uh, it, it talked about how the cult of ecstasy frowns on this rote because it's <laughs> mildly experiencing something <laughs> instead of fully experiencing it and it's like you know what that, that's just that's a fun idea i mean who who wouldn't have fun uh, you know throwing that into a, a scene where some different tradition mages are bouncing off each other yeah and as a sleeper my focus for experience substance for cocaine is usually a mirror and a razor blade so i appreciate that they brought some uh, some interesting action to the party but as we know from <laughs> destiny's price cocaine is overpowered because it gives you extra actions it's the closest you could use time three or take cocaine <laughs> so i liked the rote section assuming you covered the part where it told you what spheres were required. Like I thought they were imaginative and cool and they were in paradigm and the focuses, like the process I thought was really good. But like there's a matter three spirit, three ability that gives a chair, the ability to walk around. And for reasons I don't fully understand, it requires prime two. There's another thing where you can bounce something off the ground to like hit someone in the shins and you don't have to roll for it. You just have to have correspondence one, forces one, matter one, and time one, which I can kind of justify. And like mindfulness of wrong thought requires mind two and life one. And I have no idea what the life one is in there. So like I got this after reading the core rulebook and I feel like the wrote the magic system in mage made less sense to me after reading it. Like I thought I had an idea of how the spheres work, but like if you go through the process of trying to say, this is why this required this sphere. I don't know if all the rotes would pass that test. Now, part of it is one thing that has changed over time in mage is what determines the sphere requirements. Is it a impersonal list based on what the rule book says the, and based on what the effect is? Or is there an element of paradigm to it? Like if you say, I'm going to, to create a fireball by awakening the spirit of fire latent within this gas main, do I need spirit too? And that is, that is a rules choice that is up to the storyteller. Just for me, I find it confusing when ancillary or additional spheres are brought in. Yeah, I think that's a that's a valid criticism. There are a few in here that uh, perhaps would have benefited from a little bit uh, tighter editing, but it's a problem that I can I think a lot of us storytellers can work through. But yes, definitely keep your eyes open for that. There there were some that had some uh, sphere ratings or or spheres in there that uh, didn't quite connect. So keep your eyes open. Yeah, and the interesting thing is the second set where they talked about uh, storyteller magic for the Nefandi and for the Marauders, I thought those hewed more closely to what I considered to be the reading of the spheres. I don't know if they had different people working on different sections or, or something like that, or maybe yeah. when you're dealing with Nefandi or the Marauders, you kind of use this more universalist approach. But I I really thought those were, were pretty good. And those are things that it doesn't matter what edition you're using, like the Matter 3 Mind 2 Effect uh, frame-up or where you just start uh, creating little misdirections to start making someone feel insecure where you create barely barely detectable illusions which makes it super hard to use willpower or counter magic if you're not really sure what's happening uh, little ways of of marking someone of reminding them that you were there and these unlike a lot of the first edition rotes aren't super high dots like there's a lot of things for three dots and fewer they have a few that are absolutely crazy 
uh, as you should have, give your players some reminders of the fun stuff you can do with four dots. But I thought they were pretty good, all the ones for the non-traditions. So the technocratic procedures, the, the mad magic, and the corruptor magic, as they refer to the nefondic stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, also uh, worth noting that the rotes for Nefandi and Marauders are uh, fewer and farther between in the published mage books. So I think it is useful for uh, storytellers to be able to, to reach for that if they're out of ideas uh, for scenes that they're planning. Now, on page uh, 55 of Hidden Lore, we get the storyteller hints for the Ascension War. And on that page, I found something that was rather interesting. Uh, towards the bottom, they mention... There are 2,000 to 10,000 mages worldwide, including all the different factions and mages in uh, Horizon Realms. So th they're giving like some hard statistical yeah. data here. And, and, and oh, granted, it's a range between 2,000 and 10,000, so they give storytellers some freedom. But uh, uh, just looking this over, I was thinking, wow, as a general purpose World of Darkness fan, there are a lot more vampires than there are mages, and there's probably a lot more were-creatures than there are mages. I totally agree. This is a constant argument I have with some people in the community. It is one of those cases where if you assume that everything that has been published, that every person that has been given stats was more or less alive at the same time that wasn't a historical reference. And every time they mention a faction or a cabal, a cabal consists of at least two people and a faction consists of at least three people. Like 2,000 mages isn't enough. And this is among all the factions, all the solitaries, all the crafts, and so on, and all the people that have given up being active members of it. There's just not enough people there. Where at the other end of the spectrum, the way I interpret it as a storyteller is when a book says, oh, it's so-and-so cabal, I treat that like it is a rumor. I assume that it is not canon, that it is just kind of a, a legend that mages tell each other because there isn't like mage Facebook keeping everyone up to date on what everyone else is doing. And, and to me, I have a relatively low mage count in my stories. I tend to be close to uh, one in 500,000 in terms of how common they are. So I like a relatively small enlightened world. It, that first edition thing that Adam talked about uh, before that mages tended to find each other. I kind of like that, that they have their own little ways of discovering people who are newly awakened and just being dimly aware that they exist. And uh, yeah, it's one of those cases where in one of the few cases where we get a hard number, I don't think it agrees with everything else, which is fine, which means as a storyteller, do what you want. Yeah, and I think uh, I think a lot of us uh, storytellers would tend more towards the 10,000 figure than the 2,000 figure. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting that uh, to, to see these numbers from the developers to see what their thoughts are on uh, the material that they're writing about. So when you ran first edition and second edition Chronicles, what was out of, out of 100 mages to you, how many were traditions, how many were technocrats, how many marauders, how many were nefandi, and how many were other, like orphans or crafts? Uh, what I started out, I had just from my own rough figurings, not no real proof for it, but I yeah. had uh, small numbers of others. And then Book of Crafts came out, and like a lot of mage fans, I thought, whoa, this is pretty cool stuff, and there's probably more crafts beyond this too. And then I started having that other number uh, loom a little larger, I tended to have small numbers of Marauders and Nefondi, and roughly, in my mind, it was roughly even between the uh, Council of Nine and the Technocracy. And I'm not saying that's the way it should be or even the way that it works out best. It's just as a storyteller, I, I had that sort of rough idea in the back of my mind. Yeah. 
my, my number was always something like 30 tradition mages, 30 technocrats, 30 orphans or crafts, which is a weird thing, five marauders and five nefondi. That was kind of the number I, I found myself running with. I will be doing a Storyteller Vault supplement on this very topic, which I hope to talk about in a later episode. Yeah, it'll be certainly interesting to uh, hash that out once we uh, have a better chance. But for now, this book rounds out with uh, nine pages called The uh, the Handouts. And this is intended to be photocopied and ha- handed out to players during game sessions. There are uh, There's a page for each of the nine spheres used in the magic system for Mage 2nd Edition. And, of course, I'm not going to name them all off. I think our listeners are, are very well aware of those. But each page has a paragraph or two for each of the five levels of that sphere, and then there's a general description uh, before the five levels, just to sort of help players kind of get a grip on things. And so the intention was that the storyteller would photocopy these off before a game session, and uh, if a player had you know some dots in time and some dots in mind and life, then those three pages would be handed to that player, and the player would be told, you know, just just keep these next to you. And if you're trying to think of uh, some magical effect to do, you can you can look at these, and um, uh, you don't need to worry about the other sheets because your character doesn't have those spheres. Yeah, and uh, a pretty neat idea. And now, Terry, you were telling me that for Mage Twenty, was it Charles Siegel who who helped us out uh, with that? Friend of the show, Charles Siegel, did a publication for the Storyteller Vault called uh, The Nine Spheres, and each sphere had a two-page reference. On the front of each was what that sphere could do by itself, and on the back of everything, each sphere sheet was what that sphere could do with other spheres. And it's a pretty handy thing, and it's pretty darn cheap. I think it's five bucks or less, so if you are looking for a, a quick reference, I can I can certainly propose that, especially if you don't want to have to deal with the fact that to get all the information on magic right now, you need to have both M20 and how do you do that, which is, uh, which is I think, a bit much to ask people to have at the table. Uh, one of the things I, I wish could be a thing would be cards, where you would have the front of each card would be prime two and the card would list that. So it would just make it very easy to kind of flip through what your options were. And maybe the back of the card has how it would interface with other spheres that goes in the projects. Maybe one day I'll get to, but probably not category, but thanks Charles. Yeah, it certainly sounds handy, but for now, uh, what Charles Siegel has done for us uh, certainly sounds like uh, an item that I'd like to pick up. And in between there were two small sections one that talked about the the politics of the Ascension War and some kind of corner topics. And they're surprisingly well done. Like they talk about how each faction views the Ascension War. And I actually found it pretty clarifying to have that all in one place. It's one of those things where sometimes you'll read a very large rule book on a topic, but not until you see it distilled later do the key themes kind of come across. And that's kind of how I felt about that. They give a a two-page overview of this is actually how the traditions view things. And I found that useful because it kind of reminds you at the end of the day that in addition to the traditions being notionally the good guys, they are also a political entity and the traditions don't agree with one another. And even in the technocracy, the five conventions don't agree on what perfection looks like, but they can all agree that there are imperfections that they want to get rid of. And if they specialize but cooperate, they can do the best on that. One of the weird little notes I thought was the fact that the book mentioned that uh, the stereotypical nefondus was female, and that is something I had never thought of, whether there was a gender imbalance. Yeah, I was reading that. It's like, what, they are? I didn't know that. 
And this book also drives home that we are firmly into second edition and we still don't have a good source book for the Umbra. They include a one-page write-up of Umbra ships, which is great and tantalizing. And gosh darn it, I can't wait for... Uh, Beyond the Barriers Book of Worlds to be the one we talk about. We have a rich, thick vein of mage coming up that I'm super excited for. I, I loved Beyond the Barrier. I loved A Horizon Stronghold of Hope. And I loved Book of Crafts. So I, I'm pretty jazzed when we start getting to those. Yeah, I was I was looking at the schedule and I saw those all close to each other. It's like, <laughs> that's going to be great. I yeah. sure like those. Just like Terry, I can certainly understand why he's looking forward to oh, that. Yeah. And on one end of the spectrum, it's one of those things like, oh boy, these books are going to be great. And on the other end of the spectrum, they're not small books. They are not the 75-page tradition books we've been looking at before. So uh, we we might have to space those out because we also have lives to attend to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess at the uh, at the end of the episode, I don't have any adventure ideas on this one because this book covers such broad topics. But the question often comes up, would you recommend this book? And for me, this is a gem of a book. I, I really enjoy it. I think it's a great book. But like most gemstones, I can get through my day without it. So if someone's <laughs> going to rec- ask me, do I recommend this book? I, I would tell them how much I like the book. Uh, I would say if you're running second edition, uh, I think there's some great stuff here for you to look at. Uh, the, the rotes and other material are, are going to be more immediately useful to you. If you're running Mage 20, then uh, I think it's a great book. I think there's some fun stuff to read here. But, uh, you know, if you don't have it, you're going to be okay. You wouldn't uh, have to worry about that too much. But if you look at uh, just a few bucks for the PDF and some of the uh, great sections that I enjoyed reading, um, if you're a Mage fan, why not? Yeah, this goes in the largely a nostalgia buy, which means I immediately had to get it once I realized that I didn't have it. Um, <laughs> the the, the rotes again, are a little bit nonsensical to me. You may understand the magic system less after reading it, but they are flavorful and they are well thought out. And the systems behind it are kind of neat, again, if you cover the sphere requirements. It gives you some ideas on these are the people who wrote the system and this is what they think it can do. So uh, have at it, storytellers. Well, I think that brings this episode to a close. Uh, Were there any closing thoughts you had on Hidden Lore? Just the fact that I never realized that Second Edition had its own storyteller screen. I had gotten Hidden Lore, and it never had a copy of the screen with it. And I went online, and I purchased a copy of the storyteller screen, and I just got another copy of Hidden Lore. So if you see a Mage the Podcast eBay account pop up selling a copy of Hidden Lore, that's that's my spare one. And I'm also trying to track down a copy of the adventure that came with the first edition Storyteller screen, which was an absolute delight because that thing was batshit in terms of the art that was on the front of it, where it's like, my dinosaur house is being attacked by a laser warship. And you're like, okay, this is Mage. Where <laughs> um, <laughs> someone licensed something and had to put it on the front. So so yeah, I'm trying to track down a proper second edition storyteller screen cheaply and as well as a copy of the adventure, what was it, Angels of Angel of Mercy that came with a first edition screen. Yeah, I have never read it. I have never found a way to, to get my hands yeah. on a digital or physical copy of it. If someone could like send me a badly photocopied <laughs> version of it, I would be quite happy to read it. Otherwise, Adam and I are going to have to go into the dark web to try and find it. And before we know it, some young whippersnapper is going to have stolen all of our Bitcoin. So, <laughs> so we'll come up with a way to do it because that's how much we are here to inform you, faithful listener. We take the risks so you don't have to. 
at least uh, most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's the end of this one. So I would just ask you guys to keep the dice rolling and your players guessing. If you have any questions for us, you can contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com. Come visit us on our Discord server. There's a link on our webpage. If you'd like to tweet at us, at magethepodcast. Currently, we have some openings for executive producers. Just go to magethepodcast.com, click on supporting the show, and that'll tell you how to make a small monthly recurring donation that uh, helps us keep the lights on. We largely already have the books, but we periodically incur costs to go to events or to get new equipment, and it's nice to be able to uh, cut into the cost for that a little bit. We certainly appreciate your feedback as well as your reviews if the podcast service through which you listen to us has the ability to do reviews. And with that, bye. Bye.